Clear you on eight. Two on eight. Okay, you're clear. Stand by for your base. Welcome to EMS Cast, where we provide high-level education for you, the providers on the street. I am your host, Will Barry. And I'm Ross Orbit. And tonight we are joined by our toxicologist friend, Nick Matzler. Good evening, Nick. Hi, guys. Good to be here. Thanks for having me on. Yeah. Tonight we're going to discuss crush injury and crush syndrome. This was actually a topic brought up by one of our listeners Shout out to Joe Charles on Instagram. You know who you are. But thank you for the suggestion. And this is actually something that I have been curious about myself. So I'm excited to hear some deeper level education on this topic. First and foremost, I think something that's out to pre-hospital providers is we are taught that this is a, a very specific patient to manage. And I'm referring to the patient who maybe we respond and they're still potentially under the crush, let's say a concrete slab has fallen on them and they are still under this crush. And we're taught that there are things we can do or look out for potentially before releasing the crush, because once that crush is released, they could potentially deteriorate very quickly and we need to be able to react. And so I want to know, is this true? Is this myth? Is it somewhere in between? What are we looking for? What are we treating for? So Nick, yeah, help set me straight. Yeah, I think this is a really good question. So in terms of releasing the crush and like what you need to prepare for, there's going to be a handful of things. And so I, I would say that it is mostly true that it's a time to be hypervigilant, for lack of a better term, because things are about to change physiologically for this patient, potentially quite catastrophically. And so the first clue that you can get from these patients while they're still crushed is just see what is crushed underneath what. And so you can kind of start to predict what kind of injuries you're going to expect from these people just based on what anatomical region of their body is currently being trapped and currently having pressure applied. So if it's a extremity, okay, you can start considering the soft tissue, the ligaments, the tendons, the bones, the vasculature, the nerves. And start to think of, well, what am I worried about? You know, let's say it's a leg that's trapped under there. Okay, I'm worried about some of these major blood vessels that are, could they be actually severed and opened? Uh, and we just can't see it underneath the crush. And right now the crush is acting like a tourniquet. As soon as we remove that, are we going to start to see some exsanguination? And so sometimes there's things that are just much more basic than the physiology we're going to talk about in terms of development of crush syndrome. But when you're talking about just the first initial pass you're going to take if this person is not freed yet, we're looking at the basics of crush injury in this case. And so considering, well, what's underneath you and what might be broken and what you might need to be ready to deal with. So the immediate thing you might need to deal with is loss of blood. If it's an extremity and we're worried about a major vessel, you might have to worry about open fractures or large deformities like femur fractures that you're going to have to pull traction on. If it's the pelvis, you might have to worry about sheeting the pelvis. If it's the chest, you might have to worry about decompressing pneumothoraces or hemothoraces or stabilizing a flail segment. And so I think start stupid simple and start with the crush injury itself and consider what is currently being crushed. And then that can give you some insight as to what 
emergent next steps you might need to take even before considering the crush syndrome potential itself. So Nick, based on that, I guess the most immediate life threat that you just described is if we lift this off and it was acting as a tourniquet, suddenly they start bleeding profusely and is Is there any indication for placing a tourniquet prior to lifting whatever is crushing? That's a great question. And this seems to be somewhat controversial in the literature overall. And a lot of the controversy more has to do with who is the right patient population to apply it to, not necessarily the application itself. And so to make that a little less heavy handed, I suppose what I mean is that there's no good rule to say all these patients should have a tourniquet applied to them. But the converse is also somewhat true, meaning that applying a tourniquet to these people prophylactically is probably not the wrong decision in many cases. What I would say is that if you have somebody who is trapped very briefly underneath something large, and by brief, I mean, you know, less than an hour-ish. So if somebody's trapped underneath something for a short amount of time, I would certainly have a tourniquet ready to go, but I may not inflate that tourniquet prior to them becoming unstuck from whatever object is crushing them. But I would have it ready to go just in case there's some sort of bleeding that we haven't seen yet or have appreciated yet because of the object being on top of that. Now, if they're trapped for, you know, coming up to an hour or longer than an hour, tourniquet might be useful both in case there's bleeding, but it might be useful to inflate it before an object is moved for the prevention of some of the crush syndrome that we'll talk about here in a little bit. So the answer is a little bit unclear in terms of the literature because this is a really difficult topic to study and risk stratify patients into. But I would say for my money, if somebody is trapped for a relatively short amount of time, certainly less than you know 30 minutes, but let's say reasonably less than an hour, I would consider having it ready to apply right away in case there was like an occult injury to a blood vessel that we're not going to appreciate until something is lifted off the patient and it opens up. But I probably wouldn't empirically put it up just to prevent complications of crush syndrome. However, if it's been like that for quite a while and you can still apply a tourniquet, I would start considering just inflating it, especially if you have a relatively short transport time to take somebody to the hospital and then let the doctors and surgeons there decide what they want to do with it. I like that. Always be prepared. But can you tease that out just a little bit more? Like, explain to me why the time difference, why the time consideration of less than an hour or greater than an hour might affect your decision making. So this is another area of contention in the literature. How long does it take to put you at risk for crush syndrome? And so this entity that we're sort of dancing around is the delineation between these two types. So there's the crush injury itself. And in that capacity, we mean what are the physical injuries to the body in terms of the soft tissue, bones, and what have you that was actually crushed by something. And then there's the development of this crush syndrome, which is really a syndrome that we see from the death of the cells within whatever was crushed. And as all these cells die, they release these things that can become toxins because of the new extremely high concentrations that they'll be within the bloodstream. But the development of crush syndrome takes some time. So all these cells, like you have to have a large amount of them die within that compartment before we're really going to start getting into trouble. And exactly how long they need to be ischemic for is a little bit up for debate. Because if you consider crush syndrome similar to just applying a tourniquet to somebody who was stabbed in an extremity, like when you are saving somebody's life by putting up a tourniquet in the leg after somebody was stabbed in their femme artery, 
well, yes, you've stopped the bleeding, but you've stopped the blood flow to the rest of the leg as well. And we never really talk about that very often in terms of like, oh my gosh, are we like really worried about the rest of these cells in the leg? And it's because you usually get quite a reasonable amount of time there. So, you know, most of the time, People are being transported to the hospital near, like right after the tourniquet's been put up. And, you know, surgeons aren't taking it down in the operating room for the first like, you know, 30, 40 minutes or so. And so those can be up for quite a while. And we don't see too much damage to the muscles and the other soft tissue. We don't see mass die off of cells in those extremities when a tourniquet's been up for a relatively short amount of time. And that's usually about less than an hour is what we're shooting for. I think that logic also extends to these crush syndrome patients too. Now, of course, the physiology is going to be a little bit different than just the tourniquet being up, but there's sort of this magic number where all of a sudden you go from, yes, these cells have just been ischemic for a little while. They're a little bit angry and irritable, but they're mostly intact. There's not a lot of buildup of these toxins. All of a sudden you flip from that to this really devastating, oh my gosh, there's been this mass die off, this mass necrosis of cells and the blood that's getting ready to return to the rest of the body is in a way toxic because of the buildup of these certain chemicals that uh, otherwise are part of normal respiration of cells. And that magic number, we're not quite sure, but you know, somewhere about an hour is probably what it's going to take. Somebody crushed for less than an hour probably has a lower likelihood of ongoing to crush syndrome, whereas somebody that's pinned for more than an hour has a very high. I got it. Okay, that makes more sense. The bleeding complications, the tourniquet is certainly going to address immediately, and that'll stop the life-threatened bleeding. So we want to be prepared for that. But the complicated, more controversial issue is whether or not it stops these toxic cellular death chemicals from getting back to the blood, or if it just worsens that process because you're continuing to cut off blood flow to the area. And so we're getting a little ahead of ourselves. We'll jump into, I guess, the cellular death and that controversy moving forward here. So Nick, I respond to a patient that's crushed under a, a concrete block, let's say, and I arrive on scene and this patient is still under the concrete. And let's say rescue workers are actively working to get this crush off of them as they would do. What I'm understanding is there could be some obvious immediate life threats that'll stand out to us. Bleeding, potential for airway compromise. If the crush is on their chest, that can impair their breathing. Those types of life-threatening injuries are things that we would react to as we would on any other call, perhaps. As the crush is still on them, we'll get into what's happening at the cellular level, but eventually that crush is going to be lifted off. And when that crush is lifted, we need to be ready to react. It sounds like one of the big things we need to think about there is probably life-threatening bleeding, because let's say there has been severed arteries, but there's a tamponade effect from that crush stimulus. And once that's removed, we need to be able to react to any bleeding. Then at some point, all the byproducts of cellular death and the crush stimulus are going to reach our systemic circulation potentially. And there's other effects that come from that. Does that sound like a good summary for kind of our very initial, we walk in and we're thinking through this case? Absolutely. I think that's very well said. I think it is there is this initial set of injuries that should be very 
commonly recognized. They should be things that you're used to dealing with. You're saying, yep, that's a boulder on somebody's leg. That's a problem. Let's get it off of them. And we're going to assume the usual stuff like injuries to the structures that are deeper down underneath due to all that force. And then exactly like you said, you should be prepared and vigilant for the things that are going to happen next as that extremity becomes reperfused or as this person gets unstuck from where they are and we start to see some potentially devastating physiologic changes. So as that crush is being applied to a part of our body, what is happening at the cellular level? I assume it does depend slightly on if large muscle groups are involved or if it's on our abdomen and the structures that are within our abdomen. But generally speaking, I would assume that the crush is going to cut off blood flow to the affected tissue. And then what happens? That's exactly right. And so... I liken it a lot to compartment syndrome in an extremity. The development of both of these is somewhat similar in that you can either be crushed by an overwhelming amount of force that is going to cut off the true arterial supply, or you can even just be pinned and trapped under something that is trapping your leg, but only enough pressure to cut off the venous supply. And either way, you're going to get into trouble because If your venous side is compressed, remember it's a low pressure system, the veins are kind of floppy, it doesn't take a lot of force to compress veins, but over time you're going to keep pumping blood into that extremity because the arteries are open and working at first, and as you pump more of that blood into that extremity, you're actually raising the pressure in that extremity. Eventually, the pressure is going to get so high in that extremity because of the blocked venous return that it's going to cut off the arterial system as well. Or if you're trapped under something that's just putting that much force on you, you're, you've shut off the arteries completely. And like you said, cut off all blood flow. Either way, you've now developed a state in which your cells are slowly becoming more and more ischemic. So there's a few things that are going to happen. First of all, the cells are going to try to hang on. And so as they try to hang on, they're going to be releasing what we would call inflammatory markers or inflammatory cytokines little cell signals that are like, you know, flare guns saying, help me over here and trying to encourage the body to come help them. And then eventually, as they start to die, their cell membrane, which was sequestering all the contents of the cell within itself, that is going to start to break down. And when that breaks down, now everything that was within the cell is going to dump out into the bloodstream. So it's important here to draw the distinction between, remember, there's always the difference between What's in the bloodstream itself, which sometimes we call the serum or the plasma, which are all different components, but we all kind of are meaning the same thing. So there's stuff that's within the bloodstream, and then there's stuff that's sequestered within the cells. And those two things can be extremely different in terms of concentrations of different substances they expect. And as we explore some of these toxins, we'll talk a lot more about that. But certainly what's happening is that the cells are trying to hang on for dear life. They're dumping out all these pro-inflammatory molecules. And then eventually some of these cells are starting to die. And as they're dying, they're starting to release all their intracellular content. And it doesn't really matter what is being crushed. Any cell is susceptible to being killed by lack of good oxygen supply. And the lower extremities are certainly the most common that we see. So worldwide, you know, we see crush syndrome and crush injury mostly related to natural disasters and sometimes man-made disasters with blast bombs or earthquakes, things like this that are going to shift the landscape and cause stuff to collapse onto you. This is, of course, where we see most crush. And in fact, most crush syndrome develops from the lower extremities. And, And partly, I think that's because 
as you're getting at will, they do have a lot of muscle mass to them and a lot of tissue in general that can die and can leak out. But at the same time, if you're being crushed so substantially on your pelvis, abdomen, or chest, then you probably have other injuries that are much more morbid than just the crush syndrome that we're going to have to worry about, which is why I think those people, unfortunately, just don't often survive long enough to develop the true crush syndrome, whereas these folks, especially with those big lower extremities, end up potentially at risk for this. So I want to take a moment to plug. So we'll run with our scenario here for a second where we arrive on scene and a patient has a a large crush, let's say some concrete on their pelvis and lower extremities. First and foremost, which would hopefully kind of go without saying, but we should say it anyways, you need to keep yourself safe. If we're talking about some sort of a collapse, a structural collapse or natural disaster or an act of terrorism, please keep yourself safe. And also remember that if you are not the one working to free this person from the crush, the people that are going to be working very diligently to get this done. So let's say we don't see any of those immediate life threats like the exsanguination or the ABC stop fix type problems that we automatically think of, and they're working hard to get this person freed from the crush. What can we do, if anything, to assess and monitor them while these rescue efforts are ongoing? Yeah, I think that's a a really important question. And I think the first thing, like you said, is keep yourself safe. The second is get everything you can to prepare yourself well. And so what I mean by that is if you have the ability to access the patient in any way, which you may not, depending on where the person's trapped or crushed, but if you can access the patient to do things like start large bore IVs, that would be great there's going to be a theme of volume resuscitation that's going to come into play as we keep talking about this. And so being prepared to give that volume and also just starting the patient with a bolus, even while they're trapped, is going to be important. So being able to get access to the patient and then being able to do basic things like put them on monitors or give them medications to help with pain and things like that would be great. And so I think if you have access to the patient, get set up with all these things. And in my mind, it's like, hey, try to get them on the monitor because dysrhythmia risk is going to be high. Try to get plenty of IV access so that you can give them fluid resuscitation. And if there's any parts of extremities that are pinned, trapped, crushed that you could add a tourniquet to, maybe not necessarily inflate it, but have it at the ready already on that extremity for when the crush obstacle is removed, I think all of those would be a great first step to get prepped. And just to prep yourself mentally for This is a patient that's going to take a boatload of volume for reasons that we'll talk about here in a minute, but it's going to take a lot of volume. So just being ready with like, how many bags should I have spiked and ready, like in the back of the ambulance to give this patient? How can I make my life easier once they get freed? And I've done as much upfront work because if it takes several hours to free a patient and you're standing there just waiting to receive this patient, certainly there's those kinds of things that you can start prepping in advance, mentally prepare yourself for dysrhythmias, the medications you're going to need to give. And then once that patient is delivered to you, you can feel really cool, calm, and confident. take care of them on your way. I like that forward thinking and being prepared. So just to quickly summarize that, if you have a trapped patient before they even get freed, you're going to want to be applying tourniquets to appropriate extremities so you're prepared for any sort of life-threatening bleeding. You're going to want to start an IV and even give a fluid bolus before they're freed, and we'll talk about the importance of why that is moving forward. And then you're going to want to make sure that your ambulance is set up and prepared to receive this patient once they are freed. You talked about cellular death and with cellular death 
comes the release of contents. What are those contents and why are those contents harmful? It's a great question because I've used this word toxins a few times, but I've tried to be careful just to say potential toxins or acting <laughs> like toxins because they're not really toxins in the traditional set. Like they're not like cyanide is not being released into your bloodstream. But what it is, is it's the a toxicologist is a little offended by calling these toxins as what I'm hearing. <laughs> That's, that's, that's right, my friend. <laughs> but the, the godfather of toxicology, Paracelsus himself, <laughs> does have the famous quote that dose makes the poison. And that is exactly what's going on here is it's simply nice. the dose that is turning these substances into poisons. And so what we mainly see is like the best example I can give you is, of course, the one that you're probably most familiar with. And it's the potassium issue, namely the fact that you're going to become potentially profoundly hyperkalemic. And how we illustrate this is, okay, your normal blood concentration of potassium ranges somewhere between three and a half and five. And there's a little bit of wiggle room there, depending on exactly what you consider stone cold normal, but somewhere around three and a half to five millimoles per liter is your normal potassium concentration if we test all. Now, inside your cell, now that's just in the bloodstream. And earlier we were talking about the difference between the two. Inside your cell, the con concentration goes up to 140 or 150 millimoles per liter. So we're talking about 30 times as much potassium being intracellular compared to just in your bloodstream. Now you imagine a handful of cells die, no big deal. Like there's a lot of blood in your body. And so it's diluted out and other cells take up that potassium over time. Your kidneys help eliminate it. No big deal. But when you're talking about an overwhelming amount of cells dying and all those cell membranes breaking open and this just rush of potassium coming from inside those cells and leaking out into your bloodstream, that's when we start talking about a huge life-threatening issue. And so when I consider what's happening in somebody's physiology as that boulders being lifted off of them or whatever's causing this crush injury, I'm thinking about three main things. I'm thinking about large volume and fluid shifts. I'm thinking about immune reactions. And then I'm thinking about the change in concentration, in all these substances, namely potassium is a big one, but certainly protons or acid is another one that's going to leak out of these things. And then pro-inflammatory cytokines are another one that are going to cause problems. So what happens when that potassium leaks out of the cell or that acid leaks out of the cell? What physiologically yeah. happens within our body? So the potassium is probably the most important one to harp on because that's the one that you're going to be able to potentially fix pre-hospitally. And that's the one you might see pre-hospitally that, that maybe is the most dangerous right off the bat. But when all this potassium leaks out into the body, again, under normal circumstances, your body, when it's a small amount of potassium from some cell turnover, some cell death, it gets absorbed by other cells or your kidneys get rid of it. No harm, no foul. When it's so much that it overwhelms your body's ability to buffer it, meaning your cells can't just take up this hoard of potassium all at once and your kidneys are overwhelmed and can't get rid of it and they're having their own problems with what we call myoglobin, which we'll talk about here in a minute as well. When these systems aren't working, your blood concentration is going to rapidly rise of potassium. And when your blood concentration of potassium rapidly rises, your heart muscle starts having a hard time. And now, in fact, it's not just your heart muscle that has a hard time. It's actually several, like all your muscles in your body might have a hard time. But the heart is the one we worry about the most because that's the one that's going to kill you. Like if you feel a little weak in your arm and you're like, ah, I'm having trouble making a fist with my left arm. Nobody cares right now if you're dying of a dysrhythmia. 
And so it's going to affect multiple muscle groups, but the heart is the most important muscle that we're worried about. And what happens there is normally the way the heart it works in terms of electricity is you are at some voltage that we call your resting membrane potential, usually somewhere around negative 90 millivolts. And then as you start to, quote, depolarize a, a heart cell, that resting potential starts to become more positive, so it goes closer to zero. And at some point around 30 or 40 millivolts, it takes off and it causes that whole action potential to happen, meaning that now it propagates all your electricity through your heart to tell your heart muscle to squeeze. And it's doing that by opening these sodium channels. So just the high-level view is you are normally at a resting potential that's very negative. You, quote, depolarize the cell, which takes it closer to zero. That triggers this action potential, which is the opening of these sodium channels, which then helps propagate this signal throughout the rest of the heart, this electricity throughout the rest of the heart. When you have too much potassium around, what happens is that it brings that resting potential closer and closer to the threshold of depolarization. And so in other words, it makes all your cardiac myocytes, your heart cells, it makes them all twitchy. It makes it really easy for them to depolarize. It means that any small stimulus is actually going to set one of those heart cells off. They become so irritable. And in fact, really interestingly, is you can actually sometimes see these effects in, I'll call it a somewhat positive way, meaning let's say you had a right bundle branch block. Well, you might actually see that right bundle branch block disappear when your potassium gets a little bit too high because the cells are so twitchy that they're not slow anymore. So you actually see your EKG go back to almost normal because your heart is able to depolarize a little bit more normally because the cells are just a little bit more twitchy. But the problem happens is that as that gets closer and closer to depolarization threshold, as that resting potential keeps getting lifted higher by the increase in potassium, eventually those two numbers become very close together. And what that means is it means that these sodium channels are almost locked in the on state. They almost can't get back to normal. And so now you have this heart muscle where cells are just randomly firing and a lot of the cells that are, have fired can't repolarize to try to fire again. And you end up with these bizarre arrhythmias and, and eventually into that sine wave pattern that you'll see sometimes touted on like EKGs where this is devastating hypercase. Yeah, because the cell or the heart is just having such a hard time repolarizing because those two numbers are so close together in terms of the threshold potential and the resting potential. So hyperkalemia causes life-threatening arrhythmias. What does the acid release cause? Yeah, so the acid release is going to cause potentially life-threatening acidemia. And so you're already going to be somewhat more acidic from just all the energetics going on in the leg, meaning that when you consume fuel, there's a little bit of acid that's produced in your body. And as long as you're not producing too much, no big deal. But if you're trying to consume an overwhelming amount of fuel to try to keep a limb alive, that's going to produce a little bit of acid. And then the contents within the cell itself, again, like the mitochondria are just like a little bag of acid in there. And so when they break open, they're releasing those contents into the rest of the body your pH is going to slowly drop more and more. And as your pH drops, your blood vessels dilate. So you need more volume in those blood vessels to try to keep stuff flowing around in your circulation. 
and then they're going to cause proteins in your body to not fold properly. And this is ultimately going to lead to your organs starting to shut down. And you're going to see effects both on potentially cardiac conduction, but then certainly in terms of just the rest of your circulation, you're going to see hypotension. And then you're going to see things like your medications and drugs not work as effectively because the serum is so low in terms of its pH. And then to wrap up the physiology portion of this, you briefly mentioned myoglobin. What is that and why does that wreak havoc in our body? Yeah, that's a great question. And I kind of gloss over it a little bit in the beginning because it's one of the ones that can happen in many different circumstances, not just Crest syndrome, but we call it a different name. Often we talk about rhabdomyolysis. And so rhabdo is a feature of Crest syndrome that can occur. And what rhabdo is, is usually when your skeletal muscle has broken down, you release something called myoglobin, which myoglobin is similar, as you can tell by the name, to hemoglobin. But the difference is that myoglobin sort of lives in muscle cells and acts as sort of like this little battery of oxygen within the cells that it can hold on to temporarily. This myoglobin has iron in it, just like hemoglobin has iron in it. And what happens is that iron is extremely reactive. It's an amazing molecule that helps us move oxygen around our body. But the problem is that that comes at a price. And the price is that it's incredibly reactive. It can cause what we call oxidative stress. And iron is not good for certain organs, and especially in the kidneys. The kidneys have a hard time when it gets bombarded with so much myoglobin all at once. It can't get rid of it very quickly. And when it can't get rid of it very quickly, it gets sticky and it gets stuck into the renal tubules. And it causes this blockade and causes this oxidative stress within the renal tubules, which ultimately leads to profound renal injury that sometimes never comes back and, and oftentimes may need things like dialysis. And it's actually interesting because this is one of the first ways that crush syndrome was identified. So I believe authors' names were Bywaters and Beale, but their description of crush syndrome comes from 1941, where they noticed this pigmentation in the renal tubules after a major earthquake and they were doing autopsies on people. They noticed this similar finding in people that had been crushed. And it was at the time, not well known exactly what was going on, but we, of course, now know that this was the deposition of myoglobin from profound rhabdo from the crush injury. And so these are the big toxins, if we're going to call them that, that I think of coming from your own cell tissues. I think of it as the acid release. I think about it as the hyperkalemia that's going to cause dysrhythmias. And then I think about the myoglobin that causes the clinical entity of rhabdomyolysis. And usually we think of it as primarily affecting the kidneys. These are the, the big ticket items that we're going to have to deal with clinically right afterwards, even though there's going to be a myriad of other substances that potentially cause harm. Nick, thank you so much for the, the pathophys. With that in my mind, I'm thinking now back to this scenario I'm picturing where there's a patient under this large slab of concrete. So we've addressed any potential life-threatening injuries, exsanguinating hemorrhage, airway, breathing, stop and fix, ABC problems. And they're, they're under this crush, but rescue efforts are now active and they're, they're trying to get this crush off this patient. What I'm gathering from listening, you describe how these things enter the bloodstream and how high the concentrations can be once they are released and enter the bloodstream. Again, I think it's a really good plug to start monitoring this patient immediately if it's safe to do so. Get large bore IV access, manage their pain if that's appropriate, 
But also, I want to have a reality check for a second. A lot of the methods used to release a crush injury, like a large slab of concrete, happen kind of incrementally. And so if we think about raising a large crush with airbags or cribbing or other standard rescue tools, it's going to go up several inches, and then we're going to capture that progress with a block of wood or cribbing, and then we're going to reset, and it's going to go up again a little bit. So this idea that like all of a sudden this large concrete slab is just off of them all of the sudden, I don't think that that's actually very realistic. And so I think with the thought of it being released incrementally, being prepared early to catch the changes in our patient's condition are really important. And that goes back to being set up with IV access and monitoring capability so that we can be ready to react until they're completely free. I think that's an excellent reality check overall, because I think you're exactly right. As I've sort of been describing it, it's like all of a sudden this prophetic rising of this boulder off of a person, it's not going to happen all at once. And I think just to your point, that's going to make the physiology and treating the physiology potentially even more difficult. And I think that that's actually a, a really common, I'm going to call it a training scar that we all develop in EMS, because we really set this up as it's almost binary. Like there's when the crush is applied, and then when the crush is off. And in reality, as these large crushes are lifted off of a patient, it, it is most likely going to happen incrementally, which means blood flow is going to return to these parts of our body bits and pieces at a time, one muscle compartment, then another, then maybe one leg is free fully, and then we're still working on the other leg. And in the meantime, all of these things that you just described that have been released by dying cells are getting into our bloodstream and we need to be ready to react. Absolutely. And so the big take-home point is absolutely going to be fluids and management of pre-hospital hyperkalemia, I think, are going to be the biggest components of this treatment overall. And so I kind of go back to the, like, when I think of something being released after a long period of ischemia, such as the crush being released, whether it's slowly, incrementally, or whether it's all of a sudden, the three things I think about are the big volume fluid shifts, the inflammatory markers, and then the toxins being released. And to kind of tackle each one of these individually, the first two are both treated somewhat by fluids. And what I mean by that is that if you imagine that your leg has been cut off from any blood flow for quite some time, and now we're incrementally getting off of you, so now some of the veins and arteries can start flowing again, remember all that blood was sequestered in there for a really long time. And either because of breakdown due to lack of oxygen and ischemia where these like the cells in the blood vessels have started to become a little bit more loose or whether because of the crush and the pressure injury itself causing these blood vessels to become more leaky. Either way, what's happening is that all of a sudden, all the fluid has been shifted out of the intravascular compartment, so out of the blood vessels, and it's starting to go into the soft tissues around that area. And not only has it been doing that while this injury has been occurring, but now that you've released it and you're starting to allow blood to enter that leg again, then what's happening is a lot of that blood is going to start leaking out through all those holes that are there. Those holes aren't going to magically go away. And so you're going to start just leaking a heavy amount of fluid, almost like a burn. You know, when we talk about a lot of burns with big body surface area. They're going to have a lot of insensible loss from that tissue, just weeping fluid. Well, that's happening in these crushed extremities as well, but you may not 
visually see it as weeping, you may just see the leg being extraordinarily edematous because all this fluid is just leaking into that area over and over and over again. But obviously, like you need to try to circulate some blood throughout the entire body as well as that extremity. And so it, it can't necessarily be helped, but you can try to make up for it by giving the person large volume of crystalloid fluids and potentially blood, depending on what's going on with the patient and what you guys have available. The other thing you have to remember is that the way tissue edema resolves, like the way you get fluid that accidentally went into the soft tissue back into your circulation is via the lymphatic channels. The lymphatic channels are going to be almost completely disrupted by this level of crush injury. So not only have you made the blood vessels more porous, you're leaking more blood and blood contents into the extremity, but you can't get that fluid back into your circulation very quickly because normally the lymph system is handling that. But right now, the lymph system is totally broken. And so you have just this huge fluid shifts that are going to occur. And as fluid shifts occur, they're going to cause electrolyte shifts, even if there was no other electrolyte problems like the hyperkalemia that we'll talk about. So what you want to do is use an isotonic fluid. In this case, actually, normal saline is probably better than lactated ringers if you have the option on your pre-hospital rig, simply because lactated ringers, unfortunately, has a very scant amount of potassium. Now, it is an enormously scant amount of potassium, and if you had given them LR, I'm not going to have a problem with that whatsoever. But there are the purists out there that will say that if you gave LR, you are harming this patient because there is technically a little bit of potassium in a bag of LR. So this is a time where if you had the option, I would give them NS. If you don't have the option and all you have on your rig is LR, I would dumpster it all into them and I wouldn't think twice about it. So Nick, in my mind, I'm moving forward now to this patient is is fully out and I have full access to them. Maybe they're in my ambulance or, or you know, we're not in the, the danger of the crush environment anymore. We've talked about being ready to respond to signs of hyperkalemia, which, you know, most systems have a, a protocol for that. Are there any other meds that are common on EMS rigs that would benefit these patients? Yeah, and any indication to attempt to treat this hyperkalemia prophylactically. So with the myoglobin, the fluid shifts, we are going to give isotonic fluids prophylactically before this patient's even lifted. We know there's going to be a huge fluid shift. We're going to give them a bolus before they're even freed from the crush syndrome and attempt to hemodynamically stabilize them because we know this fluid shift is going to happen. Any role for that prophylaxis with the hyperkalemia? That's a great question. And there's not good consensus on what to do from that perspective, because a lot of it is consternation over whether crush syndrome is really going to develop in a patient or not. So should we be giving a lot of these medications prophylactically upfront versus waiting until we can test or waiting until you see signs and symptoms of something like this? I think that there are some things that are easy and rent-free, but I think it also depends on what you can do according to your departmental guidelines and sort of what you can do for the management of these different conditions, like what your guidelines are for hyperkalemia at your current group. Like, what can we do from this perspective? But I think that we know, like, calcium is going to be a huge life-threatening hyperkalemia, as we know. And I don't know if giving it prophylactically or not is necessarily going to be the right thing for a patient. But I think if you see absolutely any signs of hyperkalemia or anything that makes you suspicious, I think at that point, using 
reasonable doses of calcium are going to be extremely important. Ross, as you were getting after the sort of fluid bolus that we're going to give people is going to help dilute out that potassium to some degree, hopefully. And so just the fluids alone are going to help from a hyperkalemia perspective. And I think there's low rent stuff like, for example, albuterol is going to help shift the patient. Now, the shifting from albuterol is not impressive. Like we're not getting a lot of potassium to shift intracellularly with the albuterol we put on patients. But hey, man, that's a really low rent thing to do to slap on somebody if you're just waiting for them to be extricated. Now, I don't want you to be the guy standing there with the albuterol mask waiting for the patient to be freed. And you're like, yes, as soon as this guy comes out of this like boulder that's crushing, I'm going to slap this life-saving albuterol in his face. And like, this is the way. Like, that's not what I mean at all. I just mean, if you guys are bored, you've taken care of everything else, you're just, you're so mentally ready for this patient to come to you. You're just like, I can't stand just sitting here and slapping a little albuterol on them for whatever wheeze you hear, I think is very reasonable because we're going to start shifting some of that potassium that's in them down. We're going to drive their native potassium down a little bit, ready to receive all this potassium that's going to come from them. So fluids like dilute out the poison. So dilute the potassium down. So fluids both before they're extricated. And then certainly once they're extricated and titrating to hopefully get them to pee, but also to keep them hemodynamically stable is going to be big. Calcium, absolutely at the first signs of anything that you see that votes for hyperkalemia. And there may be a reasonable argument to giving it empirically before the patient is freed. And then other shifting agents that you may have available, depending on your different guidelines. So if you have albuterol, I'd use that. If you have bicarb, you could use that. If you have insulin, of course, you could use those things. And of course, that's going to vary depending on exactly where you work and what you have available to you. And I think today is the right day for you to talk to your medical director about whether or not you would like them to have you apply a tourniquet to somebody that's crushed for X amount of time. Because I think the hardest thing to know is whether prophylactically applying a tourniquet is going to either save somebody's life or do more harm than good. And so I think having an idea, both if your medical director wants any of that, or if they have an idea of like, hey, if somebody's been crushed for greater than 60 minutes, should we just put a tourniquet on them and bring them to the hospital? Because the likelihood of developing crush syndrome at that point is extremely low in the pre-hospital setting. And then we dealt with where we have like dialysis and other modalities, knowing that we might lose the leg, or do we not want to worry about that at all? And I think having that discussion before you encounter this patient might be a good idea. So you have a good idea of, of what to do first. Nick, it's a really common question in pre-hospital circles about prophylactically treating these patients with bicarb. What do you think about that? I'm trying to remember my previous bicarb rants on your guys' show. <laughs> I love bicarb, and I, I love dumpstering it into people uh, for all sorts <laughs> of different uh, concerns. But in this case, I don't think prophylactic bicarb is going to help you a whole ton. And I think you're just going to make the physiologic swing bigger. I think once they're getting sick, I think giving it to them makes sense. But the problem is that I suppose if you're giving it to somebody where it's being like released slowly and you're worried that there's some like acid and everything else entry and potassium entering into the circulation slowly, it might be reasonable to give them little amounts of like, you know, an amp bicarb here and there as they're kind of being extricated out. But I think purely prophylactically, meaning like before we've even removed the object, I think I wouldn't do it. And even in the case where we're like removing these things slowly or rapidly, I don't think I'd do it necessarily before I had higher suspicion that we have developed crush syndrome or we are swiftly heading that direction, meaning that I like 
you know, I'm like, ah, oh, this person was only trapped for 30 minutes. The lake looks pretty good. Like I'm not seeing any dysrhythmias. We're hemodynamically stable. I would say I'm not as worried about it. If somebody's super sick and their leg looks bad and you're really worried that, yeah, I don't see anything on the monitor that's hyperkalemic yet, but we're already going in a bad spot. I think bicarb is not unreasonable to try in these sorts of patients. Again, I think one of the real difficulties of taking care of this is we certainly know it as a clinical entity. We see it a lot, especially around the world following disasters. At the same time, it's so hard to study that we don't have a good study that looks at bicarb versus no bicarb for lower extremity crush syndrome, like, you know, isolated in, in this area. And that's the only variable that changed. And so the problem is a lot of this literature is more conjecture. And then, of course, there's some things we know that are going to happen and that we can fix, like the hyperkalemia and things like that. But then there's a lot of these really good questions like prophylactic bicarb, prophylactic calcium, how much fluid to give these people prophylactically. And then, of course, once the leg is being reperfused or the part of the body is being reperfused, you know, do we use tourniquets? Do we do other things prophylactically? These are all like phenomenal questions. And most of my answers are my best guess on physiology after a review. So, Nick, A little throwback to paramedic school vocabulary, but a syndrome is a group of symptoms which consistently occur together and kind of characterize what's happening to the body underlying. So we've now lifted the crush. What is crush syndrome? What's the constellation we're going to see? Yeah, absolutely. The big constellation is the large fluid shifts that are going to lead to both severe edema, as well as hemodynamic instability. Then there is the pro-inflammatory state that's going to lead to worsening edema and reperfusion injury to whatever tissue was previously ischemic. So as we start flowing blood into that, that actually can hurt those areas as they try to come back to life. And then, of course, the third part of crush syndrome is going to be the electrolyte derangements and other toxins that are going to cause things like the cardiac dysrhythmia. So when I think about it, I think about a patient who is acidemic, who is likely altered, potentially needing respiratory assistance, who is in profound hemodynamic compromise, meaning that they're hypotensive, they're tachycardic. And they're going to be difficult to control with fluids alone. On top of that, you're going to need to be monitoring for dysrhythmias in these patients and treating them accordingly. Is there a role, you know, different systems across the country equip themselves differently? And I'm also thinking about critical care providers that may arrive to a scene like this on a helicopter. But is there a role for giving this patient a Foley and maybe giving them LASIK? That's a really good question. It is the... Mainstay of therapy in terms of some of these shifts is going to be to keep the person urinating, to keep the kidneys producing urine, and to make sure that they're perfused enough that they can do that. And that will help eliminate and rebalance a lot of the intracellular space. And so there's a lot of target goals, like we want at least 300 cc's of urine per hour, and oftentimes we're targeting much more than that. In these folks, trying to get them to make sure we're perfusing the kidneys well. And so doing something like placing a Foley would allow us to accurately determine those ins and outs to help us know where we are in terms of the goals we're trying to achieve. And certainly Lasix is another thing that's used in these cases because we need to keep the kidneys peen as much as we can. 
to help keep flushing everything out, so to speak, because we want to flush that myoglobin out so it's not hurting the kidneys and diluted out. At the same time, we want to give the kidneys as much opportunity to excrete as much potassium as possible, so we're not going to have to worry about that as much as well. And so certainly, if it's within your scope and it's in a safe space to do it, then I think placing those kinds of things would not be, like placing a Foley would not be unreasonable. And if you kind of know what you're looking for in terms of using Lasix, I don't think unreasonable. However, I think it's probably more important to just get, I think between those two, I think the most important thing would just be to get the Foley in so we know how much they're urinating because that would be good data to have. But at the end of the day, I don't think I'd necessarily hit them with Lasix in the field. I think I'd probably wait to measure what's going on in their blood in the hospital or move swiftly to dialysis if I feel things are too dire as dialysis would sort of be the ultimate fix for some of these issues. Yeah, certainly those things feel not life-threatening, right? Those things are going to be done if you've done everything else and you have nothing else to do similar to your albuterol. You talked about treatments with calcium and sodium bicarb in response to abnormalities you're seeing. Tell me what your triggers are for giving those and what your doses are going to be. So for me personally, and again, I'm not sure exactly what your guys' drug availability for hyperkalemic treatment is, is going to be, and it's going to vary by region that you work in. But what I would do is at any sign of any change on an EKG, so getting a 12 lead periodically during transport, especially if it's a long transport, like this would be an important thing to do. Any signs of hyperkalemia, which can range from widening of the QRS to peaking of T waves to bradycardia to first degree heart block to ventricular arrhythmias, AFib flutter can happen. Like Essentially, hyperkalemia can cause almost everything. But what you're going to see at first is hyperexcitability. So you're going to see a lot of like PVCs, PACs. You might start to see some of these peaking of T waves, first degree block or widening of the QRX complex. And then as time goes on, this is going to like the QRS is going to get wider and wider and wider. The heart rate is going to slow down as we're not able to repolarize these sodium channels as quickly and it's going to turn into that sine wave. So any change on the 12 lead, I would just go ahead and give them calcium because we know that is how you're going to keep them safe. And I never want to say never because somebody's going to challenge me, but I would say that it is really hard for you in the pre-hospital setting to hurt somebody with calcium. Like hypercalcemia is very well tolerated in the body, especially for short amounts of time. And so it is going to be extraordinarily difficult to harm somebody with calcium unless you are pushing amp after amp into them. And so if I see any signs of life-threatening hyperkalemia, which is everything we just talked about, in a patient that I suspect has crush syndrome or is at risk to develop crush syndrome, then I'm going to immediately give them what I would suggest is an amp of calcium chloride but some of your rigs may only carry a calcium gluconate. And the reason for that is calcium chloride actually has about three times as much element as calcium gluconate. And so calcium chloride for milliliter for milliliter, pound for pound, you're giving more calcium as calcium chloride than you are as calcium gluconate. So I preferentially, in somebody that I have a really high suspicion for wild potassium concentration, I reach straight for that. Now, the argument against me people will make is that calcium is an irritant and a vesicant. So what it can do is it can cause some injury to the blood vessels. So typically when we think about giving calcium chloride, the old adage is like try to only give calcium chloride through like a central line 
and give calcium gluconate through a peripheral line. At the end of the day, if you destroyed my entire saphenous vein with calcium chloride, but I'm still alive for my crush syndrome, I'm going to be pretty happy about it. And so I don't care about bagging a small vein. That's me personally in these situations. And honestly, that's not going to happen very frequently. You're going to be able to give this through a peripheral vessel probably many times before we really have to worry about severe damage to that vein. So personally, me, I think that's overblown. So in my practice, this is the way I approach these patients if I need to. If I think I can get away with calcium gluconate, so be it. That's fine for a peripheral push. You should follow your guidelines. But whatever amount of calcium you can get in them, please put into them because that will be helpful. So any sort of EKG changes, low threshold to just go ahead and give calcium because it's a low risk intervention. What about sodium bicarb? So the bicarb is going to be obviously more controversial because anything related to sodium bicarb is uh, more controversial. <laughs> but the reason I like it is twofold. One is that by making the serum pH a little bit more basic, what you're going to do is every cell in the body as a proton potassium exchange pump. And so if I make the serum a little bit more basic, I can actually pull a hydrogen ion out of a cell in exchange for a potassium. And when I become more acidemic, the opposite happens. So the body is trying to buffer the acid. So it's trying to pull the acid out of the bloodstream and into the cell. And when it does that, the only way the cell can do it is by releasing another potassium into the bloodstream. So when you're not only hyperkalemic from the release of the potassium, but you're also acidemic from the release of all the protons in that leg and the rhabdo, well, now you're this perfect cycle of, wow, the potassium's already so, so high, but more potassium is coming out of the cell because you're so acidemic. And so to me, the bicarb can help reverse that. And then it depends on how you feel about the literature for alkalization therapy for rhabdo treatment, because there is some evidence that potentially using sodium bicarb can help you from rhabdomyolysis treatment by alkalizing the urine. So if you believe in that literature and you think that is a good treatment strategy, then that might be a dual effect. And so for me, I think if somebody is real sick, I don't think I'd use it empirically, but I think if somebody was sick from crush injury, I think I would probably consider giving them one to three amps of bicarb especially early in my resuscitation to try to keep them safe. Because for me, I'm trying to keep them, like once they're in the hospital, I'm trying to keep them alive long enough so I can get some labs back, so I can place a dialysis catheter, so I can do some of these other things. I think a few amps of bicarb would help limp that patient along until we can do more definitive things. And so for my money, I would say fluids, dilute everything out. I would use the calcium at the first sign of anything on the EKG. Because you can be hypervigilant for hyperkalemia in a patient that doesn't have these risk factors. But if you are at risk for developing crush syndrome, you know that's a big one. So anything on the EKG, I would immediately give it. And then bicarb, if it's within your scope, I would consider giving one to three amps of bicarb in these people to the sick patients to try to limp them along to definitive therapy. And to define the sick patients, you mean like hypotensive, any sort of EKG changes, altered? You're exactly right. So, you know, if somebody's like a little tacky, they're wide awake, they're talking to you, I'm not so worried about that patient. I'd still be very vigilant that they're going to potentially progress into a more sick patient, but I guess I'm less concerned right that hot second. 
But if I start seeing EKG changes, hypotensive, the patient is altered or has been uptended this entire time, they've been crushed or any of the above, I would strongly consider it in those circumstances if it's within your scope of practice, knowing that like me recommending that is just based on my knowledge of physiology and there is no randomized control trial that I can point to that say it's going to work in this situation. But it's uh, personally how I would. Nick, is there a role, you briefly mentioned it, but systems that are carrying whole blood, what is the role of whole blood in the setting of crush? I would say that I mean, there's some really fancy things I could dream up for, <laughs> but I think in terms of using the whole blood, I would do it on a patient who we think exsanguinated some amount. So whether that was due to like, you know, we always talk about, well, in femur fracture, you can lose a few liters into that thigh, right? Well, I mean, you could have femur fracture on top of this crush injury or from this crush injury, I mean, but you could also have vascular injuries that you're not necessarily going to see with your eyes that are going to cause hematomas and things like that. They're going to be deeper inside. And so I think if you have a high suspicion that this person has lost blood volume, then I think I would use it as a resuscitative fluid to try to give them some blood volume back in addition to the rest of the fluids I'm giving them. But I think if you don't have a high suspicion that they've bled a lot, you just think this is gross fluid loss, I would just stick with your crystalloid fluids at first, just from a resuscitation standpoint. So whole blood great for traumatic injury is an exsanguinating hemorrhage, probably no role in the crush syndrome per se. No, not exactly. Like it gets a little more convoluted because there are some like heroic things that have been tried in the past, like uh, pulling out a couple of units in somebody and then transfusing a couple of units of clean blood back in, so to speak, with the idea being that you've removed a lot. Like it's kind of like the poor man's dialysis. But like, so things like this, I, I don't recommend, but they are great for television shows. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds cool. That's going to be the next, uh, the next call I run. It's also crazy. I mean, way beyond this scope. It's also a crazy thing to think about with the citrate that is used to store blood and how that causes hypocalcemia when the calcium is like protective against hyperkalemia. That's actually a really good point. I hadn't considered that. That's spot on, Ross. You're totally right. You'd probably just be eating I mean, calcium. Yeah. Who the heck knows? I'm way beyond the scope of anything that has probably ever been studied. But any other big questions, Will? Yeah, for any system out there that has point of care testing besides a glucometer, there are some systems with a, you know, an iStat machine or the like. If we measure potassium or we have the ability to do a blood gas, maybe we're not doing this when we're in the rubble pile, but do you see utility in that immediately or is it better just for trending their course as they get into the hospital? I actually think that that would be really neat if that could be done pre-hospitally because I, I think I would use it in two ways. One is that, you know, if you could get a potassium number from it, even knowing that like, ah, maybe the sample's not the perfect sample. And so maybe I'm over-treating hyperkalemia because some of it was like hemolyzed. So just the reader's wrong on their potassium's normal. But like, I think if you could get an inkling that like, hey, there's not EKG changes yet, but this guy's potassium is six, I would just go ahead and just treat that person aggressively especially with a high clinical suspicion for crush syndrome. I would just start getting after it right away if I had that kind of a hard number. Similarly, I think you could use a blood gas to measure the pH and know just where we're standing. Because, you know, the person can be looking at you a little tachypnic. 
they're otherwise doing okay right this hot second, especially if they're younger. And then you get their pH back and you're like, oof, it's like 7.1 or, you know, seven flat or something like that. That's again, a patient that I'm much more worried about having true crush syndrome that we just haven't seen blossom yet because their pH is so abnormal. So I think hitting clues with those kinds of early testing might be really beneficial to direct some of your early resuscitative efforts if they were available to you. I would just be very aggressive if you see profound abnormalities on those tests. But if they were pretty normal, that would actually reassure me a little bit and say, yep, I can probably just keep cruising to the hospital, run some fluids, watch out for things, but maybe not get too aggressive and then see what develops in hospital with some of the tests there. Great. I want to hearken back to the question that was posed on Instagram by our listener. And uh, I kind of want to, as we wrap up, I want to revisit this idea of sort of how you would run this call. So we're dispatched to a potential crush injury. Someone has been under a crush and there's active rescue efforts going. So we arrive, we assess, of course, for our immediate stop and fix life threats, exsanguinating hemorrhage, airway problems, anything that we would see on any other trauma patient. We want to immediately address those things as best we can. And I would say if it's safe to do so, which hopefully it will be, we want to immediately start care, which would include monitoring the patient with our EKG and possibly any point of care testing we can do if, if it's safe to do so. We want to start IV fluids on them, preferably two large bore IVs, any pain control that would be appropriate and within your local protocol. And of course, we want to apply tourniquets to anything that would be appropriate if there's a, a crushed extremity that we have a strong suspicion for exsanguination. When the crush is released, we can preemptively apply a tourniquet to that extremity. If we want to apply a tourniquet to that extremity as some sort of means to blunt the onset of crush syndrome, that would probably be a decision you would consult your online medical direction to make a decision like that. As this crush stimulus is released, and potentially that can be incrementally, we want to monitor our patient diligently and be very quick to react to any EKG changes we see that would be signs of hyperkalemia. We may not treat with medication prophylactically, perhaps albuterol, if that's appropriate. But once we see those EKG changes, we want to be ready with our hyperkalemia treatments, our calcium and our sodium bicarbonate. And then once the person is free and they're fully in our care, we're again going to continue with IV fluids, treatment for hyperkalemia. And depending on your system, your context and your protocol, that's when we might consider other things, diuretics, Foley catheters, whole blood if it's appropriate for our traumatic airway management, if that wasn't already indicated previously, and any other treatments that might benefit our patient. Yeah, Will, I think that was extremely well put together and a very nice, concise summary. And if I give you even the more concise version, the, the desert island version, if I just had two things, it would be fluids and calcium in terms of treatments. And it would be a monitor to keep an eye on their cardiac rhythm. Everything else is absolutely exactly as you said, Will. And I think things that are more in flux and things that I can't be more definitive about, do they work, do they not work? But what we know is these people are going to lose an extreme amount of volume. So 
preemptively replacing some of it and then continuing to replace it throughout that time. And then we know these people are going to get sick because they're going to become acidemic. We know that their kidneys aren't going to work well, that they're going to have big electrolyte shifts. But at the end of the day, all those other things are going to kill them a little bit more slower, like within several hours. And it's going to be the potassium that's going to kill them right away. And so getting the volume in there so they can circulate blood around so that you can mitigate some of these large volume shifts and then be super vigilant for anything that lets you know that maybe the potassium is creeping up there and treating that super aggressively. And at the end of the day, for my money, calcium is going to be probably the best thing that you guys have available pre-hospitally. And again, it is going to be super hard to hurt somebody with temporary hypercalcemia. Now, don't take that as a challenge, but just take that as like some comfort if you're like, shoot, can I give this patient another amp of calcium? Because I really think that what's going on in the monitor is due to hyperkalemia. I think for my money, yes, like give it to them because try to keep them safe until they're in the hospital where we can measure these things a little bit better. And then everything else will, as you said, like as your care evolves, as you evolve as a pre-hospital provider and you start having the wherewithal to be like, yes, I can do all these life-threatening things and then I can also clean up all this other management stuff. I think go to town and do as much as you can for the patient. But if you showed up with two large bore IVs and you'd say you're on your third liter of NS and you've given like two amps of calcium and that's it, I would be like, great job. And I would think that was flawless pre-hospital care. Awesome. And I want to also plug... The EMS providers that listen to this that might be operating in a BLS context, whether you're on a BLS ambulance or maybe even I keep thinking about ski patrollers and avalanche burial victims, which can also have a component of crush injury uh, if it's a partial burial. I want you guys to have a very low trigger to activate ALS or a flight crew, whatever that is for your context to get this advanced monitoring and these medications to the patient's side so that you can react quickly to any changes that happen. Perfect. Thanks as always, Nick. That was phenomenal. My pleasure. Hey, everyone. I hope you enjoyed this content on crush injury and crush syndrome. As we were talking to Nick, it was apparent to me there's a lot of gray area and it's impossible to cover all the situations. How big is the crush? How long are they crushed? What body parts are crushed? I'm going to add a few more practical tips that came out as we talked more casually once the microphones were off. First, if someone has witnessed having something fall on them, a natural human behavior is for people to swoop in and try to remove the large item that's trapping them. That's okay. These patients probably haven't been trapped long enough to need a slow, methodical approach. If someone is trapped by something that is burning them or actively injuring them, get it off of them. If someone is hemodynamically unstable or needs an emergency airway, get them out of the situation. React to those things. The slow, methodical approach we described really applies to a patient that may have been under the crush for some time and appears to have no other immediate injuries. Literature and protocols speak of a one-hour cutoff, but this really isn't supported by solid data. These patients are hard to study because, well, we can't crush people, then see what happens. I say that a little bit tongue-in-cheek, but the takeaway is there's too many variables to control for. The takeaway point? 
We don't know much about time frame for these patients, so be ready. Monitor them and react to changing conditions. Remember, we're in the business of treating life threats. If we have all of our monitoring equipment set up perfectly with our calcium and our bicarb, but we fail to react to hemorrhage, we failed them. If we rush to get the patient out of the situation because we want to be aggressive with trauma care, but our patient goes into a life-threatening arrhythmia from hyperkalemia, well, we failed them again. You need to use your judgment, influenced by your assessment and history and a good physical exam. Stay safe. 